We're studying the Sermon on the Mount. As some have said, commentators, men who are scholars, said it's the greatest section of teaching in the Bible, at least in the New Testament. If you can live by the Sermon on the Mount, your citizenship, it tells us, is in heaven. Because the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kind of life that a Christian ought to live. And it begins the first several verses of Matthew 5 through verse 11. We call the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes have to do with, well, blessed are. It means those who find approval. Or this is what God approves of. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. God approves of those that are poor in spirit. God approves of those who mourn. Or God approves of those who are meek. It describes a kind of character that God wants in his people. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a way of life. I'd rather put it to you that way than to make it sound like, well, you ought to try to be like this. But if you can't, it's really no big deal. Because it is a big deal. If it wasn't a big deal, Jesus wouldn't have said it. That plus the fact that, take for example, the first one, the poor in spirit. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's who the kingdom of heaven is for, the poor in spirit. Those who are conscious of their spiritual need. Those that are conscious of their spiritual need. Now, we all have been ministered to in our lifetime as Christians on those Many occasions where we attend church, God enlightens us about something, blesses us in some way with something more than what we had. But some people think that that's enough, but it isn't enough. When you live your life walking with the Lord, you realize that every day you don't always know what to do. And you need for the Lord to show you what to do or to deal with you or show you something. And a man who is poor in spirit, realizes that he can't do everything right without the Lord. He can't do it. I need the Lord every day. I don't mean I need more of the Lord. You can only have one Lord. And I don't need two Lords in here, meaning by that more Lords. I just need the one Lord within us to have more control over me. And he gets that by me surrendering my will to him, to be willing to let him have his way. We sing that song, Teach Me Thy Way, O Lord, that... I may walk in thy truth. There's no options to that kind of a walk. This is the way we live. We're Christians. We're called to live this way. And the second thing we mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount was, blessed are those that mourn. And mourning defines the character of one who is affected by sin. We're not saying that you're an old sinner just trying to get saved again. We're talking about Christians here, saints, that sin is an awful thing. It was such an awful thing, hopefully, when you got saved, when you saw the awfulness of the previous life you'd been living, the way you acted, your indifference to God, your vile ways. And you realize that that was what made you offensive to God. You never saw it until that day that he opened your eyes and granted you repentance. That's something that only God can do. And when you saw your sin, hopefully you hated it. You hated what you had done. And it was such an awful thing to you that the idea of ever forsaking God because things get rough or hard and going back to the old way is not even an option. Not even an option. Sin is a horrible thing. It's what separates man from God. It's the one specific thing the Bible says separates us from God. We know what it did to us and we're affected 
by our weaknesses along the way when we give in to that occasional sinful thing or sinful word that we said or some action we took. It's supposed to bother us at any time it comes into our life, bringing us to our knees or bringing us to repentance. Because we are conscious of the fact that it's so easy to sin. It's the easiest thing we'll ever do in this life. I always said the easiest thing to do in life is quit. It takes no effort to quit. You can give up along the way, quit, throw in the towel, walk away. Anybody can do it. Most people do. But that's all because of the nature and the effect and the power of sin. It just makes you turn and say, God, you're not big enough. This isn't going to work. I can't do it. It's not possible. Therefore, I am turned away from you because whatever it is you said in your word, it won't work for me. I'm not going to trust you. How many of you know that's sin? Sin lieth at the door. Remember Genesis 4, 7, sin lieth at the door and its desire is for you and you must master him. Remember that? So it's always there as a design of the devil to turn you away from God and his ways. And if he can do that, he can distort what God has said. He can make you confused about this Christian life. As most people say, you know, it's too complicated. I can't understand all of that. Well, that's the work of the devil. Because you can't understand if God opens your eyes. And so we're not only aware of it in our own lives, but when we see sin in other people. Have you ever been bothered by the sinfulness of other people? I know it has. I'm just wanting you to agree with me. But as a Christian, have you ever seen sinful people do things? And you know, you know they've never been turned around. They know they've never been saved. And they're doing things that God delivered you from. And you know what's going to happen to them. If they die like that, you know what's going to happen. And there's no relief. They can't escape from that. Once your eyes are shut and you stop breathing, it's over. That's why people are praying hard for their loved ones. Because if God doesn't save these folks, they're going to die. Not only die physically, but they're going to die spiritually in their sins. They're already dead spiritually. But they're going to perish. And so it's such an awful thing, and we're affected by that. That's why some people pray a lot and pray for a lot of people a lot. They don't want to see things happen to people. This is why they sometimes groan in the Spirit. It's really something you, that bothers you and affects you, and you really want to see God change it. Last time we talked about blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Would you look for me before we go on tonight to the fourth one? Would you go to Titus chapter 2? Because it tells us what the word meek is all about. Meek's not an easy word to define. It's used in so many different ways. But listen at this, Titus chapter 3 and verse 2. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness, Unto all men. The word gentle is a flaw in society today. It's not there. Kids are not taught by the people that are portrayed as heroes today, and the people that youngsters aspire to be like are not gentle people. They're usually rugged and tough and hard to bluff. And the idea of being meek is not popular at all. Because you talk of meekness, you're talking about being gentle and kind. Or some would say, well, that's what sissies are. Well, to be meek is such a difficult thing to do that very few are, no matter how hard they try. Because it's the kind of character that you'll find in God's kingdom. Anybody living in that kingdom is going to be meek. 
Meekness has to do with the opposite of being arrogant, combative, the opposite of, of being cocky and in your face, the opposite of kind of being rude and, and roughshod. Meekness is the opposite of all of that. And yet people admire today the tough guys or those singers that wear the baseball hats with flat brims and they got that scowl on their face. I think this is supposed to mean I'm bad to the bone. And meekness is the opposite of that. It's the antithesis of that. You turn it around, you find meekness. Somebody who is no brawler, not a fighter, not a threat, and doesn't intimidate people, but somebody who is nice and kind and gentle, who can actually smile. And you don't see much of that today. You just don't see a lot of kind, gentle, and friendly people. It's almost like if you do that, you're not tough. And yet, what's tough? If tough is a ticket to hell, then tough's a bad thing. Now, there's ways of being tough that you can also be meek. Because you have to be tough to endure to the end. That is, you have to be enduring. But you have to do it in a specific way. You have to do it God's way. And to be meek, well, that's what God wants from us. That's what he wants our children to be. And I can remember growing up how many times we told our kids, that, don't you want to be a tough guy? Come on, you got to be. And don't let anybody push you around. Don't ever turn the other. You know, and we didn't say it like that. But I realized that's not what we should teach our children. We're teaching our children to emulate the world, to act like them, to be tough out there, to come home with a bloody nose every now and then, show that nobody's going to push you around, buddy. But that's not what God teaches us. You may act like that in this world, but you won't in the next world. Amen. Now, fourthly tonight, go back to Matthew 5. Fourthly tonight, and we'll probably try to do two of these tonight, because these all run together. They're easy to understand when you get the one idea about the kind of people that will be in God's kingdom. Because this Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, is about His kingdom. The kingdom that is coming, that Jesus is going to reign in. And these are the people who will reign with Him. Verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. Now, hunger and thirst is a universal language. Anytime you hunger and thirst for something, it's a way of saying you're really motivated to have something, to get something, or to obtain something. You really want something. It's a great desire that you have. Spiritually, it's like Psalm 42 in verse 1. It says, as the deer, we call it in the song, as the heart, the Bible says, but as a deer panteth for the water brooks, so my soul longeth after thee. Wouldn't you like to have that as a natural way of your life? Maybe there is that in you, and it just hasn't had its way yet. You think of it. This is the language that God uses to show us how we ought to desire Him and His way. As a deer panteth for the water brooks. You can see in a dry and thirsty land, no pools of water, and how much of a distance you have to travel to get water, or how hard it is to dig down and get whatever they do. But they're willing to do it because they need it. They need it and they want it. And he said, to be envied or those that have the approval of God are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He said in Psalm 107 and verse 9 that he satisfieth the longing soul. Would you believe me if I told you tonight that there are Christians in the world whose only desire 
whose major number one desire is to know God, to follow Him and to serve Him on His terms. No options, no substitutes, just teach me thy way, O Lord, that I can walk in that truth. And you know what? I need it and I want it so bad that you don't have to tell me I should be in church or that I should go to a meeting. I'll be there because my heart desires to be fed. I want to know what is right. God's word is like food. And he said that the just not only shall live by faith, but he said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You've got to want that. And to most, I'm not talking about you and I say this now. I don't think I am, but to most Christian people, this is an option. It's nice to have this. It's a good thing to know, you know, things about God. But he says, this is what I must have. I need this. That's why I moved where I lived and came here. I could have stayed in the respectable place I was. You know, I learned all the routines and the ritual. I could go through all of that. I knew all of that stuff. Just like my daddy knew how to do all of the things that he did. We learned the system pretty well. But it was dead to me because it had absolutely no effect on my heart. And it couldn't have any effect on my heart because my heart was closed. When God opened my eyes on June 30th, 1968, when God saved me, and my eyes for the first time in my life were open, not only to see how bad I was, but to see what is offered me and how good God is. And the feed trough as he spread that table out in front of me for the next how many years I'm going to live, 40 plus so far. There is a continual feed. If you taste and see, in this illustration, if you taste and see that the Lord is good, you'll want more. If you've only come to the trough and got a little pinch of it, say, that's all right. That's good, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I liked it, yeah. <laughs> if that's all there was to it, then that's all you'll get out of it. But if you've ever indulged yourself in what is offered to you by God as a meal, oh, you want more of it. And I have found that it's not necessarily a gifted speaker. It's not necessarily eloquence. It only is the anointing. Like Paul. They said about Paul, his speech is contemptible. I don't know what that means. He must have been a bad speaker. But they flocked to hear him. Set up all night in one instance, set up all night long to hear this contemptible speaker. Why? Because of the anointing. It's the way, it's the lifeline that God gave to his people through a speaker. And the lifeline was really instruction. God was teaching those whose ears were open, who wanted to hear, who came to hear, who hunger and thirst after, I need this. As I said earlier, those of you in this, there's not a handful of you from Shelbyville. Almost everybody here came from somewhere, somewhere else in this country. Why did you come? I hope you came to hear the word. Some of us gave up a lot. Some of you gave up a business. I wouldn't mention names, of course, but men gave up a good business in a nice place to come all the way to this town to start all over in the middle of their life for one reason. I need to hear the word. I need what I'm hearing. And I've got to feed on this. And it's not the speaker. Trust me. You can say amen, but it's the anointing. It can be wherever God puts it. And when it's there, you need to be there. He said about the priest in Malachi, he said the word of God is in his mouth and 
men seek that word from his mouth. And it doesn't have to be flashy and he, whoo, all of that. It just has to be the word of God. Some of the best learning experiences I've ever had was from a droning voice. I tried to imitate that once and I thought, oh no, that never work. But for those that are anointed like that, that's the way they do it. But righteousness, that one wonderful word that occurs over and over and over in the Bible, is the effect of what God is doing to us. For example, righteousness refers to simply God's right ways. It's the way of God. The only right way is the way that God reveals or shows to his people. Now, he is a source of righteousness. Therefore, he is called the righteous God. Jesus referred to the righteous father. Because righteous means he is in and of himself, nothing added. He is right. He is right in what he says. He is right in all of his choices. And remember, you didn't choose him. He chose you. And he did what is right. Because he is God. He said in chapter 6, verse 33, he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Do not go about to establish your own ways and try to please and serve people. They will think you're great and they'll admire you and talk about you like they did the Pharisees. But he said, you seek first my kingdom, which again is what this book is about. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he said, all the things that the world is clamoring after and forgetting God, he said, I'll give to you. How many people believe that? Well, they should. I don't know how many people do, but he said it in Matthew six thirty three, And we'll get to it again, obviously. But he said, you seek first his kingdom. And all these things that people are seeking for shall be added to you. And that should be our testimony. It should be. But it all depends on whether or not we're seeking his right ways. First John chapter 2 and verse 29, he says, If you know that he is righteous, then you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. So it's clear there that righteousness is something you do that is right. Are you with me? And your good ideas are not what's right. Because Jesus said, all your righteousness is as filthy rags. Remember that? There is none righteous, not one, because there is nothing a man can do to make himself or herself right with God. You can't do anything at all to make yourself right with God. I don't care how much you attend, how much you give, how many tapes you listen to, how many... World affairs you've attended. You can do nothing to make yourself right with God. Only God can impute righteousness to you. No man ever came to God right. The only thing that makes us right, this is called imputed righteousness. The only thing that makes us right with God is God's acceptance of us. We don't accept Him. He accepts us. And when He accepts us, and makes us his own because of our identification, our identification with God. We not only are declared to be holy or sanctified, set apart unto his life and his work, but it says we're also right with God. We're not right because we did something. We're right because we believed in what Jesus did. 
for he is our righteousness. This word righteousness occurs all over the New Testament. It's a big word. It's a very important word. But essentially it comes down to the fact that God is showing his people what is right and telling his people that the only thing you can do that is acceptable to God is what he said because that alone is righteous. Because when you go about trying to establish what you think is good and everybody's going to follow that, he said, your righteousness is just filthy rags. And that's not a good word in the Bible, but it's a very graphic word. And that's how God feels about that. And First John 2, he says, if you know that he is righteous, if you know that God is altogether always right, then you know this, that everyone that is born of him does Righteousness. And could we say this? This is narrow and unacceptable to a liberal world and a liberal church in a liberal world. If you're born again, you'll do what's right. Can you ever do wrong? Well, if you do, you'll repent because of your sensitivity to wrong. And you'll turn around, you'll repent. Didn't he say in 1 John 1, if any man, uh, I'm sure it's still in here, if we confess our sins, he is... Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from what? Well, would you agree with me then and say all unrighteousness is sin? It's when we go about doing things our way. Help me. When we go about doing things our way because it seems such a good thing to do, it's unacceptable to God. There is a way that seemeth. Right unto man. Remember the proverb says that twice. There is a way that seems right. Well, everybody likes it. It seems right and people are coming and it's, it's happy and progressive and thriving in a way that seems right. But the end of that way is what? Death. That sounds hard, but it's true. It's not true because I said it. it's true because the Bible said it. We can't make it true either. It's true, eternally true, for this word is forever settled in heaven. So clearly, he wants us to know that righteousness is something you do, like 1 John 3. Go across the page in verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you, for he that doeth what is right is right. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. That's what it says. And if a man is right with God, if a man is doing what is right, he is by his doing faithful. And if a man is faithful to God, one word will mark his faithfulness. It's called obedience. For example, keep your finger in Matthew 5 and go to Romans. Romans chapter 6 and verse 16. Romans 6 and verse 16. Know ye not that to whom you yield yourself servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. You obey the world, you obey your inclinations, your feelings. Bad people, your choice is yours because you live by faith. Faith in something. Faith is a choice. Anger is a choice. Doubt is a choice. But faith is a choice to take God at his word. He says, to whomever you obey, you are the servants of whomever you obey. And then he says, either of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. 
So if a man, biblically, scripturally speaking, if a man is going to be righteous in the eyes of God, he will be declared by the things he does are the things God gave him to do. The way he goes is the way God gave him to go. The things he speaks are the things that God gave him to speak. And when he is willing to obey that, God says he's in right standing with me. You're not in right standing with me because you belong to church. Not because your membership is on a roll somewhere. Jesus said, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and never enter the kingdom. Which is what he's talking about here, his kingdom. Go back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 15. It's talking to John the Baptist. Jesus wanted him to baptize him. He said, I can't baptize you. Jesus said, allow this. For it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so then John the Baptist did that. One translation says, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Now think of this. If you read your Bible, you read it carefully, you read it sincerely or honestly. God shows you just by reading what's right, doesn't he? And isn't it required of us? Doesn't he expect us to do what he shows us? And when we do it, we're doing what few people do. But when we do what he said, we are fulfilling, that is, adding to, making a part of our life on his terms. Another translation says, For so we ought to fulfill every religious duty. Now, the word duty throws a lot of people off because we don't like to think of Christianity as a duty. It's more of a responsibility, they say. But, you know, it's a walk. It's a walk in which it is my place in God. My responsibility to walk with the Lord in the light that He gives me. For if I don't walk in the light, what am I walking in? I'm walking in darkness. I can be very religious and walk in darkness. But I can preach sermons and walk in darkness. There's nothing we do that makes us right. But having been made right by God, there's a way that we show God how we're going to live and fulfill what's called of us and what we're called to live, and we begin to live that way. It's simple. It's very simple. This is the way walk ye in it. That's Christianity. Or look in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's he mean? Put it like this and make it as simple as we can. Unless my right ways, unless the way that I'm living is not the way God wants me to live, but it's a way I'm living, as I alluded to a while ago, that it's good. A lot of people like it this way. They feel good about their religion. It's not what God said. It's not the way he said. But, you know, that's the way we've been doing it. It's the way everybody else has done it. Why rock the boat? Let's just do it. But he said, except your rightness exceeds the rightness of these people who of themselves are self-righteous. You never make it to heaven. I don't care how holy you act. I don't care what great level of living you aspire to that everybody thinks is noble. Unless it's the way God wants you to live, a simple way, you won't make it. You may be applauded and lauded, and they may bronze you while you're down here and think you're the greatest thing since the wheel. But God won't accept it. See, that's hard for us. Because in this age that we're living in right now, 
you know, well, after all, I mean, nobody's perfect, we say, when people don't do right. You know, nobody can live all of this, they say about the Sermon on the Mount. You know, why should we be so now? I mean, who are we to judge this or judge that? I mean, let's just do the best we can, love the Lord, and just do good. Well, that sounds good, and people like that, because that takes the guilt out of your life, because whatever you do is right in your own sight. But if you begin reading the Bible, or somebody teaches it, and you begin to hear it like it is, you think, it's too hard. No, it's not too hard. What's hard is judgment. His judgment is really what is hard. But turn to the same book, Matthew chapter 23, and look at verse 25. This is hard. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Is Jesus judging these people? Y'all afraid to say he is? Was that a judgmental statement? Who was he to judge anybody? How do you know they're hypocrites? Do you know them? Do you walk with them? Do you eat with them? Sleep with them? Why would you call them hypocrites? You don't even know them. You don't know their names. But he would because he's God. That's what they would say today about somebody like me. If, if I said, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Somebody say, well, who are you to call people a hypocrite? Well, let me read this because he said this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within you're full of extortion and excess. You blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. For even though you outwardly appear what righteous unto men, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now, all of these things that they did was so that they would be thought of as really right with God. Example, in the beginning of chapter 23, he warned them about these people. In verse 5, he said, they do all their works to be seen of men. How many times do we do that? How many times do preachers do that? How many times is a religious effort in a community done for the praise of that community? It's not wrong to do good things. I'm not saying we don't do good things. I'm just saying if your reason is to promote yourself, it's not to promote the kingdom. Don't amen me. Just hold on, okay? Verse 5, but all their works they do is to be seen of men. And in verse Six, they love the uppermost rooms at the feast and the chief seats in the synagogue, the keynote speaker, admired, known, acknowledged by everybody. Now, this is what he said. These are the kind of people. Jesus said this. He said, I'm warning you about the religious system that's like this. This is not what I want. This is not who I want you to be like. And he more or less deals with a lot of different subjects here about these Pharisees. These religious whodunits, or I'm sorry, these religious people. And he says, on the inside of you men, you're full of deadness. You're full of uncleanness. You're full of extortion. You're full of wickedness and evil. And they didn't act evil. They didn't go around cursing and drinking beer and drunk on the streets and praise the Lord. They didn't do that. They weren't evil like that. They were just evil in the fact that they set aside the way that God says in His Word. They set things aside they didn't like. Remember Jesus said, He said, you tithe this and this and this, but you have omitted the weightier measures of the law. You remember that? 
He said, you have set aside things in the law because that's too difficult to do that. And besides, if you do that, people might not know how spiritual you are. So do things that people can see, the people that admire, and do that. That's not the way we should live on this earth. Even Jesus himself knew that since some of the healings that took place, that people were going to go, whoa. And what did he tell people that he often healed? He said, don't tell anybody. And they broadcast it everywhere. Like in the beginning of Luke's gospel, he said he knew what was in men. They wanted to make him a king once, and he withdrew from them because he knew how it was with men. And there's something about man, religious man, preacher man. There's something about man that likes that notoriety, that admiration that some of them get. Being looked up to and lauded and spoken well of, seeing your name in the right places in a magazine, not on the bad place, the paper. It's just something about that. And Jesus said this, the kind of people that I'm going to live with in my kingdom are going to reign and rule with me are people whose right ways are not their ways. They'll live on God's terms. They'll take up a cross daily and die. If anything is done through them, they will realize that they're still unprofitable service, that it was the power of God that did it, not themselves. They could take no credit for it. And they'll tell people, like they did in Acts chapter 2, silver and gold have I none, such as I have. And they wanted to bronze Peter and John. And he said, why marvel ye on us as though we by some power of our own have made this man strong? He said, this man's faith in Jesus is what made him strong. And some of the guys said, man, you had a chance here to make it to the top. And you blew it. No, we got to get out of the way. He must increase. He must decrease. As we've said in other messages through the years, we're nobodies. God didn't bring anybody in this room to him because we were somebody. Because nobody was important. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What part of it makes it so much about you? He brought us out of the miry clay. There's nothing proud about miry clay. There's heroes in miry clay and rulers and kings and emperors in us. He didn't drag them all out of there. He drugged some of us, didn't he? And we're just starting to get our eyes open to see the bigger picture about his preparation for us in our life to enter into his kingdom and to walk the way Jesus walked. And when you get away from that and you start doing things that are not exactly the way God wants you to do them or you're not really careful about how you're living your life, but people think it's great. He said, except your right ways exceed theirs. And everybody's talking about, oh, the Pharisees. If your right ways isn't better than their right ways, you will not be in the kingdom. Can you see that? Okay, I'm glad you do, because that's what he said. Righteousness is like a robe. If you go back a couple of pages to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 10, you remember the story? He says, So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, which was me, and the good was you all. And the wedding was furnished with guests. Verse 11, And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man who did not have on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in here not having a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He never paid attention to what he heard. He didn't know. I don't know how I got here. I just followed everybody else. I figured my way was as good as anybody else's. 
Verse 13, Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know why that happened to him? He didn't have a wedding garment. Well, then I would think, at least the way I study, the way this inspires me, I'd like to know what a wedding garment is. What is this wedding garment? Can we find anything in Scripture? I think you can. If you go all the way back to the back of the Bible, to Revelation chapter 19, you'll find he says this at the end of the book about that garment and about this wedding feast that is about to take place. 19.7 Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. Is that not what we're supposed to be doing now? Are you with me? We don't wait till we get to heaven and then be made ready. We're doing it now. And listen, he goes on. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. It's our willingness to live on God's terms, period. Our willingness to seek first the kingdom of God and His right ways, knowing that there is no substitute for that. We have no options. That's the way we live. That's the way He's called us to live. That's the way we're supposed to live. And think of it as a little bit of a reward. He said in Romans 14, verse 17, a verse that we all know, for the kingdom of God is not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. God's right ways, which if you want to live this way and you're willing to do that, God will grant you peace, for He is a God of peace. For those who are willing to be faithful, they will have peace. The world's falling apart. People around you are falling apart. People are full of drugs trying to deal with stress. You're at peace. Not only are you at peace, but you have joy. You've got a smile on your face. The world cannot understand. And the time is about now. We're about there in history. I don't know what's going to happen nationally or globally, but things are not really good. This is a real good time to have the kingdom of God lodged in your heart. It's a real good time to get right with God if you never have, because things aren't going to be exactly easy. But he said, if I'm willing to live this way now, this right living, being acceptable to God on his terms, doing what he wants, living by faith, trusting him as best I know how. He said, it makes me the kind of bride that he wants for the robe, the wedding gown that we have is fine linen. Linen, incidentally, is different from wool because wool will make you sweat. Linen doesn't. Man doesn't come before God with his efforts. He comes before God on God's terms. And he comes there. Jesus said, how'd you get in here? He said, well, I'm very religious. I've been in church all my life. I've done this, that I've called you Lord, Lord. I've cast out demons, worked miracles. I've done all these things in Matthew 23. If anybody's going to heaven, surely I am. Or oh, my grandpa, my uncle, you know, he built the church and stoked the stove and everything else. Of course, he was difficult in the community, but I mean, he did all these good things. Jesus said, I never knew you. You thought you were right because you did a lot of right things in your own eyes. You didn't do what I said, but you did what you thought was right. I never knew you. 
Isn't that difficult? But it's true. We're not to run from that or cringe at the idea of that. We're supposed to say, I'm glad he's showing me, if, if you believe it, you determine that, but I'm glad he's showing me these things now so I don't have to fret tomorrow or fret some other time. And notice this, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. They shall be filled. For those who are willing to live a hungering and thirsting life, seeking God life, living to not only learn, but living to serve, to do things the way God wants you to do it. People don't like for you to preach on some of these things. I've talked about being out of debt and and about the marriage bond and all of that, and people just can't stand it because they don't want that to be true. And it's not true because I said it either. If you got a book that will tell you what's true. Don't believe anything I tell you. You search the Scriptures. If it's true, you believe it because God said it. But people don't like to hear it. I hope you do. I've tried to run everybody here off once or twice I first came here. I thought if I can run them all off, I don't have to do it. Everybody kept coming. Because there's something about the impact of truth. For those that want it and those that have it, they really want it. And if you say things that are hard, you might go, hmm, where's this say? Does this say that? Whoa. And they begin to see it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who wants to do that? I'd like to shoot his dog if I could. (laughs) Can't do that. It's just the fact that he's changing me. If I'm going to be a servant in God's kingdom, if I'm going to live with him in eternity, he tells me this is the kind of person you're going to be because this is the work of God. He's making us like this. Poor in spirit, mourn, meek, and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And concerning peace, I mentioned a while ago in the kingdom of God. Let me just read this to you. Isaiah 32, 17 says... And the work of righteousness shall be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. What kind of person is that who walks around secure, unafraid, peaceful, with a smile on their face when everything seems to be going wrong? And people know you're not exactly doing well. I know you're not. And you think, you know, I don't live. I'm not happy because I got money in my pocket. I don't have peace in this world because I'm such an expert on foreign affairs or government affairs. I've just made a decision when I was a young man, 28 years old. I decided that the only way that's right is God's way. I didn't know it that way then, but I see it now. And for me to live on his terms means I've got to find out what those terms are. You don't get it all at once. You keep getting the rest of your life. And every time you get something, a little more light that comes in, he that knoweth to do good must do it. It's a life you live, and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. It never gets easier because your flesh is always rebelling against it, but you've got to crucify that and stay with it. And he'll bring you into his kingdom. Matthew chapter 5. Secondly, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. One of the outstanding attributes whereby God is known in Scripture, is by His mercy. God is seen as rich in mercy, great in mercy, and 
There's so many words that describe or try to describe God as merciful. And so what does merciful mean? What do you mean by that? Well, it means having compassion, having pity, a desire to relieve the suffering and the hurting. All of us were. Pity means sympathetic sorrow of one suffering, sympathetic sorrow for one suffering. Pity. We often think of having pity on somebody. Well, you poor soul, bless your heart. Well, in a sense, it involves that, but it comes from your heart. See, to be merciful to somebody is to want to show kindness to that person, to help relieve their suffering, to be involved in some way of making it better for them or getting them out of a hole. It's something that we want to do for other people. We recognize God has done that for us and that he still does that for us. God makes a difference with us. I thank God he didn't leave us back where we were. But he's been long-suffering towards us and the times we deserve to be cast aside, and yet he was merciful to us. Why was it? Because he's God. He is God and he's wonderful and he loves us and so forth. But mercy, when it comes to the Lord, let me read in Isaiah 54 and verse 18. He says, In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, says the Lord. Think of this and what I just read. With everlasting kindness, I will have mercy. Now, is God kind? Is He nice? Is He compassionate? And caring. Does he care for you? There's a place in the Psalms that says, No man cared for my soul. And one day God did. And the effect of God caring for you is something internal, something spiritual, something that stays with you. If it's happened, stay with you the rest of your life. That God has rescued me, rescued the perishing, and as the song says, and so on and so forth. Let me read what some scholarly men have said about the word mercy and how to define it. Some of you have heard of A.W. Pink. I'm not promoting any of these men. I'm certainly not promoting all of their teachings. I wouldn't his, but he had it right here. A.W. Pink says concerning mercy, it is a gracious disposition toward others. It is that kindness and benevolence that feels the miseries of others. It regards with compassion the suffering of the afflicted. It is that grace that causes one to feel leniently with an offender and to scorn the idea of taking revenge. Mercy. Man was caught speeding. He got a ticket. He went before the judge. And the judge says, okay, what are you here for? He said, well, I've got a ticket. I was speeding. But man, is it 55 miles? I was only doing 56 Now, the judge, being the law, is totally right in saying, did you break the law? (laughs) Yeah. But just poquito, just a little bit. Is the judge fair if he says you're guilty and you'll pay a fine? Is he? Could the judge do that and be right? He could. But what if the judge says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. And your heart starts beating a little bit better now. I'm going to let you off this time. I don't want to see your face in here again. 
That's grace. That's mercy. He had mercy on you because you were guilty. That's what God did when he saved you. All we like sheep had gone astray. There was none righteous, as I said earlier, and none could make yourself right. You couldn't do anything to make yourself right with God. We all deserve the sentence of death because we had that sentence within us. We knew we were wrong. You don't have to tell an old sinner out there he's wrong. He knows by nature he's wrong. He knows he's guilty. God knows we're guilty. But when he reached down and pulled us out of that miry clay and gave us, uh, what is that in 2 Corinthians 7, 1? Uh, Godly sorrow worketh repentance not to be repented of. Repented of. That's right. I got a scholar down here. Where does godly sorrow come from? It comes from God. I have no claim to that. My heart's broke because God has allowed it to be broke. Amen? I am like that guy with that Pharisee. The Pharisee said, I thank you, Lord, I ain't like that dog. I do good. I fast. I tithe. I'm in the church house. And remember what that other guy said? He could not even lift up his eyes unto heaven, smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said one of these men went home justified or right, and the other one didn't. Now, back to where I was. A man who experiences the mercy of God in his life finds God willing to forgive you all your sins, all your nasty life, all your vulgar thoughts and unclean life, everything you did. And I may be talking about myself, but he forgave us all the nasty, bad things we ever did because of Jesus. And the faith I have in Jesus to believe that I'm forgiven, he gave me that. I had no natural faith that would work. I had to be given it. And he gave me that, and I believed in him, and I surrendered. I cried, I bawled, I squalled. I was sorry, I was sad, and he forgave me. He had mercy on me. I did not deserve it. I do not deserve it. But he did it because he is a merciful God. He doesn't have to do it. God is not required to do that for everybody, but he does it. You better amen that. You didn't choose him, did you? He chose you, and when he chose you, 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 <laughs> I hope you did. You were bothered by your sins. And God showed mercy to you. He forgave you all your sins. He washed you clean. Though your sins be as scarlet, He shall wash you clean white as snow. You look at other people now. Like that Matthew 18 story. That one guy was forgiven all of that sin. Remember that? Forgiven all of that debt. He couldn't pay it back. And he wouldn't even forgive... A fellow man of his, like $10, grabbed him by the throat and said, you pay it back. He had no mercy. And he didn't get any either. That's a difficult passage of Scripture. Theologically, it is for me, but he didn't get it. You see, there's a whole lot in the Bible about mercy from our side. What's required of us who have received mercy from God. But let me read something else. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said... Mercy is a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. 
We sometimes say, I just feel so sorry for them. I feel so sorry for that place. But mercy doesn't just feel sorry or acknowledge sorrow for somebody's suffering, but it does something. If you can, you involve yourself in some way with the poor, with the difficulty, the suffering. You wouldn't want to be in the seat that a lot of people are, would you? When God puts people or things on your heart that you think, man, that's got to be tough. There's a reason he put that on your heart and made you feel that, man, that's got to be tough. Or you want somebody to have a good time when they're not able to. You want people to enjoy what you've had. You know, when I was in Alaska last week, you know, I'm not in the lottery. But wouldn't it be nice if we could just schedule a great big airplane, put the whole bunch of you in there and go up there? You might get up there and say, I can't wait till I get home. Or you might want to stay. I don't know. You might go up there and stay up there and start a church. But anyway, being merciful, folks, is when you care about other people. It's showing inward sympathy in outward acts in relation to the sorrows and sufferings of others. That's why in a church we show compassion to people. That's why we give to people that are hurting and people that have needs. That's why in a jug back there, sometimes you know there's somebody that has a need and you put money in there because you want to contribute in some way to help those people get along better, help it make it a little easier for them. You wouldn't want to be like that, so you don't want them to be like that. You have a merciful heart. Now, anybody that would steal that money back there is just the opposite. Amen? If they'd ever steal it, I can't imagine somebody that would steal it, but it has happened, I'm sure. John Stott, a man whose books I like, said, Mercy is compassion for people in need. Compassion. Another man whom neither of us know said, It is a forgiving spirit. It is a non-retaliating spirit. It doesn't want to hurt people. It doesn't want to get even with people. It's forgiving people. God forgave you. He didn't hurt you. Didn't he? Didn't he drag you out of the miry clay? Will you turn the book of James for me? And I'll try to close. James chapter 2 and verse 13. How many of you believe the good Samaritan was merciful? You know, a Samaritan was a mixture. When the Jews were carried away captive in the Babylonian captivity, carried them all away. Well, that Babylonian king sent captives from other nations into that land today. It's called Israel. And so they would live there and make it different than it ever was. And lions started eating them up, so they sent one of the priests back there to teach these people about God, and the lions quit eating them all. And the few Jews that remained there mingled with these other outsiders, and they became what is called Samaritans. And the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them. It's, I don't think that's anything like that today, but at the time, these Samaritans were not the kind of people you would associate with. It'd be like a lot of people feel about foreigners. I don't want anything to do with those people. So here came a priest by and a Levite by and a man was wounded, been beat up and cut all over. And they went by him and said, God bless you and go on. Another one came by and said, man, oh man, that guy tore all the pieces. I wonder who did that. You know, I got to get to work. I got to go. And a Samaritan came along, one of these people that we're not supposed to like. And he said, you poor soul. Did his wounds and helped him up and got him on his donkey, took him to an inn and said, Would you take care of this fellow? I'll be back next week and month and I'll pay his bill. But once you see to it that he does well. Jesus talks in that way about compassion, which is what mercy does. You care about people. It's what we do. We care about each other. 
We care about the suffering. We care about the needy. We send money to foreign countries because we know how hard it must be for those people. We want them to have it better. We want to see food on their table. We want there to be something better than rags on their back. We've got extra things. I think God moves upon us sometimes to do that. I don't think he moves on us to do it for everybody because we can't. But there's places and times that he moves upon us to be compassionate and caring about other people. Jesus said one time, all these people came about him, and he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered. And the Bible says he had compassion on these people, and he healed them all. Today they would say, well, he could have healed them all, but he probably left a few of them sick. No, he healed them all. He didn't say to any of them, God wants you sick. He healed them all. A-L-L. He healed them all. In James chapter 2 and verse 13 Your Bible says, for he will have judgment without mercy that showeth no mercy. If you're not merciful to other people, God won't be merciful to you. Can you imagine living a life without God being merciful to you? God not being compassionate towards us? How many times do we struggle in this life and have days of, oh, God. And yet he delivers us. What if he left you alone, didn't care? People like that. People don't care. It ain't my problem. If they had faith, they'd be all right, but they ain't going to try harder than that. They ain't my problem. They all just go ahead and suffer. That's not the way God did us. He's not like that to us. He cares about us. Not that way. What did Joseph say to his brothers? You all meant this for bad when you sold me as a slave, and all I had to go through and all the difficulty I went through God's compassion has made a way for us to be fed, our families to be taken care of, and to survive the famine. That's the way God is. That's the way God is. I think my own family and your family, our families here, we're all growing, our kids are growing up, more gray hair, more or less hair. And there's not a one of you in here that can't look back on the last 10, 15 years in, in your life and not quietly say, thank you, Lord. You're still here. A lot of people have gone out and quit. You're still here. Yes, you struggle. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's not easy, but you're still here. You're still here. Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord. All right, in James chapter 2, he said, if you don't show mercy to other people, if you're calloused about other people in the church, You'll find that God is callous towards you. And then you'll start saying, it ain't fair, it ain't fair. Well, there's a lot of things that may not be fair. But God does things the way he wants to. Listen, Galatians 6 says, be not deceived. A man shall reap what? Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. You sow hardness, people will be hard to you. You sow kindness, people will be kind to you. You sow goodness towards God, God will be good to you. You put your heart and soul into something, so will God to you. You reap what you sow. You make the choice. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. It's your choice. It's your call, your decision. You can do that, and it's up to you. If you don't want God to bless you, you don't have to bless other people. If you want your needs met, why don't you think about maybe sometimes helping somebody else's needs to get met or being a part of getting somebody's needs met. We all have needs in our life, but you know what the Bible says about us in Hebrews Come boldly 
to the throne of grace in time of need that you may obtain what? Mercy. Oh, man. Come boldly to the throne of grace in a time of need that you may have your needs met. Let me read Proverbs 14, 21, then we'll close. He that despises his neighbor sins. He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth. But he that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. He that hath mercy on the poor, happy is he. You're reading Psalm 41. There's five or six good things that happen to you, including healing. It's because you consider the poor. You care about others. Listen to me. When you have that kind of a heart, trust me, it's easy to be generous. It's easy to be giving because you're loving. God in you is doing this kind of a work through you. But it's the kind of work that makes you godlike. Matthew 5, 48, be you therefore perfect. What are we going to do with that when we get to it? Be you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect? The only way that can ever happen is by doing it the way that God shows us to do it. Jude said, on some have compassion. On some have compassion. He didn't say all, did he? In Jude 22, he said, on some have compassion, making a difference. One translation says, to some show pity because they are in doubt. Drag them out of the fire and save them. Caring about the perishing. Blowing the trumpet. Declaring the way of salvation. Telling a man that you can be saved. You can be made right with the Lord. If you don't give your heart and soul to God, you're going to perish. Hating even their garments stained by the flesh, it says. You see, these two Beatitudes tonight, along with the others, are all descriptive. They all mesh together. They really do. It's just talking about the one man in different ways. He knows he needs God. He's very sensitive to things that are wrong, and he mourns about those losses. He has this meek and gentle and quiet calmness about him. He's not aggressive. He doesn't intimidate you. You, you feel good around him or her. He has a hunger for God in His right ways. And He shows mercy to other people. Is that you? Is He talking about you? Well, bow your head with me for a minute. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that You will open our eyes so that we can see with our hearts what You're saying. That You'll give us the liberty to be what we're supposed to be and not be bound by anything that holds us back. You'll open our eyes and help us to see that if we want to walk with you in your kingdom, we're going to have to walk the way that you're showing us. I pray that you would help us tonight to understand what it means to be merciful. And we look at you, Lord, for all the people you've saved because you were merciful to them. We couldn't save ourselves. We can't make ourselves right, but you could. You could make us right. And tonight, with thankful hearts, we say thank you, Lord. We give you thanks tonight for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. Help us be like that. Help us be like you in all of these things. You said you are at work in us both to will and to do 
of your good pleasure. May we find that working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.